Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Thematic Podcast. This is a series called Conversations in Contrast, and my guest today is Pastor Bob McGregor. And uh, if you just let me fill you in on the the reason why we're doing this particular series, it's because there's so much uh, good in our world. In social media, you can be used for good, but sometimes I think we're unintentionally teaching a generation to look at other people's life through filters and think, wow, their life is perfect, and I know my life isn't, and so I can never be like that person. And so we felt led to go on this tour uh, from Seattle to San Diego to ask influential people, leaders, pastors, influencers, people that have accomplished great things for God, to ask them, is it in fact true that your life is perfect, or have you been through something painful, hard, difficult that God has led you through that has actually brought you to the place of impact? And so... We are in uh, what's called we're calling Shalom, Shalom, the mobile podcast studio. Come on, baby, <laughs> that's good. And uh, and this is the conversations in contrast podcast series. So, <clears throat> Pastor Bob, the way that I'm uh, introducing people is because I know that your your resume, your official. You know, if somebody said, hey, give us the, the speaker bio is going to be long, extensive and all that. Um, and I, I do know so much personally that it'll come into play. But the way that I'm trying to introduce people oh, and also, by the way, forgive us if you can hear airplanes or generators starting or whatever. We're in an RV park in Portland, Oregon, right below the airport or it, right next it, to the airport. It, it, this is real. Yeah, this is it. This, so is, this is the real thing. We're on a tour in a literally a trailer. So um <clears throat> What I want to, what I want, what I'm trying to introduce people is the way that somebody would would maybe see you or what they would think about somebody from afar. So not your wife, not somebody that's really close to you, but if if somebody saw Pastor Bob on a stage at a conference or saw your social media or saw something like that. So I might miss some things, but this is what I think maybe the the general everyday person would see if they heard some things about you, see you. So this is Pastor Bob McGregor. And I think that he's been a pastor for over 30 years. Yeah, I'm probably, as a pastor, 35 years. 35 years. Yeah. A, a tr- he planted a church and, and was the lead pastor of that church for 25, 25 years. years. Yeah. <laughs> he has planted out of his church 18,000 other, no, I don't know, uh, uh, probably what, seven churches? We eight have, church? I think we have eight churches in all that we planted out, plus uh, we've raised up our own missionaries and sent them to unreached places, so did yeah. our own training. So raised up missionaries, which is pretty common, but also sent some of his best staff members to, when, when they could have built their own church bigger and bigger and bigger, sent eight church plants uh, out to plant churches. Um, Pastor Bob is also... The vice chairman. One of the two. One of the two vice chairman of a, a massive church network called Ministers Fellowship International. And I think that you're primarily over the international churches. Yeah, I'm over the, well, the international director. And then also I'm, I'm working with all the regional directors in the United States. So I'm over them. Right. So again, through the lens of the way that people would normally see you just from afar, what we would see is this. We would see an accomplished church leader. Uh, a person that you could say, if you don't understand the word, an apostolic church leader, which means an overseer of other churches, other leaders, an influential voice, not just in congregations, but over leaders of other leaders. 
So an apostolic leader, a, a person that travels and leads and preaches all over the globe. And now your newest project, you're be, you're, I think your goal is to do a, a, a video Bible study, kind of like I do, of every chapter of the Bible. Yes. And it's kind of awesome that you're doing that and kind of sad for me because your content's going to be better than all of mine, but no, <laughs> we'll no, no. collaborate. Yours is going to be a particular generation. Mine's going to be a little bit more broad. I call it a, a uh, basically a video Sunday school. Yeah. So it's not for scholars. It's for the guy, the third pew, you know. I doesn't, love it. Doesn't know his left hand from his right hand. And isn't part of the vision of it to equip specifically smaller or third world or ill-equipped churches and leaders exactly. with all the Bible study that people would need to, to grow up in the faith? You know, a lot of pastors, first, we look at churches across the United States and even globally, we look at the big churches and we think that represents the biggest bulk of Christianity. But mm -hmm. the truth is most churches in the United States are 200 people and below. Right. And uh, they're, they're probably not going to get bigger. Some because of where the grace gift is of the pastor. He's a great pastor. People are loved. They love their church. They love their community. And, and sometimes we're in that community. So a church of 200 could be like a church of 20,000 someplace else. Right. And uh, they need help and resources and uh, just to, how to educate their people. So I want to create a biblical, li biblical literacy is a very, very important uh, conviction of mine. Not just understanding doctrine, but understanding the Bible, the story of God. So I, I want to teach a chapter on on every chapter of the Bible uh, from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And they're about 25 to 30 minute lessons. There are, lo there are notes to download. There's some PowerPoint things where they can fill in blanks, you know, on the presentation. That's one thing. I do a kind of a mentoring podcast just to do mentoring. I call it Coffee Talks with Pastor Bob. And then we're going to take on three projects a year to sponsor a church, to plant churches, to come alongside not loan them money, uh, but uh, to give them grants, you know, could be ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 and uh, to help them get out of the gate and any coaching they might need to help do that to multiply. So, wow. so that's kind of our heart. So much. And uh, not to mention, you're an avid CrossFitter. I, well, I CrossFit, um, you, I, I would, and I'm <laughs> avid, but I just nothing to write home about. Uh, well... I would say it is, but we could talk about that later because how old are you, Pastor Bob? I'm 68. He's 68, and he's still built like an NFL football player and lifting more weight than me. And the hardest work that I've ever done in my life is that you're in your garage. So anyway, we'll talk about that later. But for the sake of this conversation, and uh, anybody that's listening that's maybe a little bit younger or more, um, you know, looking at people more specifically on social media. I don't know that like your social media platform is necessarily big in terms of numbers, but what I want people to get is that numbers on Instagram are not, <laughs> sometimes it means nothing. Sometimes it means something, but what we're listening to today is a man uh, that's been used by, by God in massive ways for years and is well known internationally. And so all of these things that somebody would look upon your life, oh, not, and let me just add a little bit more, not to mention, he's a phenomenal preacher. He's got a dry, hilarious sense of humor that he mixes with, with good theology, but he's also extremely prophetic. And so all of these things that somebody would look at you and you've stood on such big stages and you've led such uh, influential leaders, 
it can be very easy to say, wow, well, I can never preach like that. I can never prophesy like that. I can never lead like that. I can never have a church like that. I can never lift weights like that. I can never be like that. So my first question to you is, is your life in fact perfect? And are you just really, really gifted and good? And has everything been good your whole life? Or can you tell us about one of the hardest things that you've been through in your life? What we're trying to do on this podcast is pull back the curtain on pain, not to elevate the pain, but to elevate the story of God's grace and mm-hmm. process through pain, struggle, hard times, maybe even what you could call the dark night of the soul. So if you would, as vulnerably as you want to, tell us a little bit about if you've been through something like that. Well, I've had a lot of dark nights of the soul. I can guarantee you that. But, uh, you know, one of my, if I, if I, you know, I haven't written any books. I've written pamphlets and this and that, and I've I've written tons of curriculum over the years. I have an education background, so <clears throat> that's where that comes from. Do you have a book in you? I have a book. Actually, I have an autobiography that uh, I've never published. Why? Uh, you know, my daughter, uh, Leslie, who's my expert on editing and uh, who is brilliant in writing herself, you know, before we, you know, we went through a tragic thing where my, my son-in-law died. Right before that, she looked at my manuscript and uh, her comment to me, and, and all love and everything, is that this is a great book for your friends to read. Okay, so, mm. you know, my writing style and what, that kind of stalled me a little bit. Put a, and she didn't mean to, like, freeze me. She just wanted me to do some things that would draw the average reader in, which kind of write present tense stories and situations of my life that kind of draws a reader in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working on that. And okay. so it's been kind of slow. And then I kind of think, am I really all that interesting? You know, you know, why is my pain like anyone else's? But if you, if first, if I wrote a, just a teaching book, I would, I would title it. One of the ones I would write on the top of the list is the power of weakness. And so you ask me, well, people look, you successful, has life been easy? Life has been very, very difficult for me. You know, there are circumstances on the outside. There's also circumstances on the inside. As you well know, Craig, I do right. a seminar on healing fear, depression, and anxiety in the church. So uh, there's a great burden in me for people to be healed from what are, what are called mood disorders. And the, what, what led to that is, is the hardest thing I ever had to face in my life. First, I'm going to kind of give it in basically three sections and that's the way okay. I view my life. The first section is that as a child, family I was born into the experiences of my youth, I suffered from what is known as uh, acute adverse trauma and uh, or, or acute, acute uh, trauma and experiences as, as a child uh, that deeply, deeply impacted me. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a beach town called El Segundo, down El right Segundo, next to right, right next to Manhattan Beach in the L.A. airport. Yeah. So what was unique about that wasn't like I lived in the hood or Compton or someplace where there's a lot of violence and stuff like that. I lived. We were kind of the the dirty, weird family of a community of about fifteen, sixteen thousand people, where everybody knew everybody. Oh, really? Yeah. And so you know, you walk. You can walk to the beach from my town. So even so, from afar, I view it as like, oh, it's just L.A., part of millions. But you're saying your little area felt like more small towny. People knew each other. Yeah, you had the ocean as the west boundary. You had all the like Northrop and uh, Hughes Aircraft and all those big buildings and industries and corporate offices as the east boundary. L.A. Airport was the north boundary, 
and a big Standard Oil refinery was the south boundary. Oh, and so, so in really that was. was a town called El Segundo. Okay. And well, uh, why would why would you say you're the dirty family? Well, my mom, my mom, I had paranoid schizophrenia. And plus, she was a hoarder. So there's two things that went on in my life. My dad really was in and out of our life at an early age. They finally divorced when I was 11. and wasn't okay. that he was around up to that time all the time. And he had a heavy drinking problem, and he was a real womanizer, and there was a lot of violence taking place between he and my mom. Ever for you? No, 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 okay. no. Physically, I had nothing coming at me that way. Okay. But I woke up to a lot of violent yelling yeah. and the police being in our home. And my mom was a hoarder, so our house was just filled with garbage. And so no one really came into our house. We, we kept our life secret from everybody else. And she was deteriorating, so she had a, an obsessive, compulsive thing of collecting things. And what, we, what this was... If we use garbage, it didn't go out of the house. So just if you live someplace for three years, it just stacked up with garbage. And um, and then my dad, you know, it was hard for him to relate to that, and I kind of understand that. And he had his <laughs> issues, and he was drunk, and he was kind of hard-nosed with me because he wanted me to be, you know, a man's man. What did he do? What was his career? Well, you know, he was a general contractor okay. and uh, a guy that bid jobs. He built hospitals and stuff. I mean, he was very successful in his career. Hmm. He just he had a disastrous situation with our family and, and uh, his kids. And was, then he, was your mom diagnosed, and was she oh, addressing it? Yeah, no, she wasn't addressing it. It was in denial. So oh, she okay. had paranoid. She, had, she was a hoarder. She was schizophrenic. Schizophrenia means comes from two two words: schizoid to divide, and friend the mind. So it's the inability to differentiate between reality and mm. and fantasy. And so you're hearing voices, you have hallucinations, you have all these things. You have your makeup world, and you associate with all sorts of things that are not real. And you can interact with the real world. So you kind of you live in two worlds. And she was that way, and it so, was. And so you're like a young boy. Yeah that doesn't fully understand science and things. So you're like coming of age and, and experiencing this sort of reality. Right. And how are you like, yeah, like growing into understanding of like, is this normal or? No, it wasn't normal. I knew you we knew were, it wasn't. Normal. I was well aware that we're weird. I had to take care of uh, epileptic seizures. Come on, I had epilepsy too. So she had oh, wow. a lot of seizures in public. So my dad not being around, she couldn't drive. So we would have to walk into town and, and, uh, you know, go shopping and these types of things. She'd have a seizure all over the place. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm eight years old. I'm dealing with an epileptic seizure wow. of a, and grand mal seizures. All I remember in my memories of the adult community of the 60s was like shock and awe. Nobody like, son, can we help you? Uh, basically, I'd, I'd get my mom up on her feet after she'd be laid down on the ground and got her out of these places as fast as I could and got her home. So I was taking care of that. It was very humiliating for me. I mean, a seizure is a, is it freaks people out. In fact, we were we were asked to leave a cafe in town because my mom had had seizures there and they they felt it was fearful to the customer, so we we couldn't go in and eat. So uh, you know, so this is kind of what you're living like, and you don't want people to know. Uh, how you have to live in the home that you live in. and So, so the I, stuff in the house and the hoarding was hidden. The other stuff is very visible because people right. are seeing it in public. So you're dealing with two worlds. You're trying to like hide as much as you can just to stay not right. being the total insane family. So what that does to the kid is I'm, I was a school phobic. I hated going to school. So I'd, be, I'd create sickness. You know, I'm staying home. Probably missed one-third of my school life all the way through the eighth grade. 
Wow. So I was a late reader. Um, uh, I just did not want people to know where I lived. I was embarrassed, humiliated, and uh, it developed, obviously, a lot of psychological stuff. Plus, my mom, when she's in a really weird mode, could just rip you to pieces and psychologically uh-huh. just, just point her finger at you and put shame all over you. So th- th- there was that. And then compounding that, uh, when I was 12 years old, there was a member of our community of El Segundo who was a Hollywood actor, Got a small time, but yet he connected Hollywood to our town once in a while, and and he befriended kids, but he was a pedophiler. So he molested me when I was 12 and had kind of an M.O. to keep me submitted to him. Now, he didn't constantly uh, molest me, but he worked me and programmed me for seven years. And, and the way he did that is he portrayed that he was not just an actor, but he went over to places like Vietnam, USO shows, and what he did is he secretly assassinated people. So he created this scenario. I don't know if it's legitimate or made up. He was an actor, okay, and a good actor. But he had that way that communicated, like, don't betray me. Literally by threat of Like harm, like death or harm. Yeah, hey, just so you know, I... I assassinate people, so yeah, just yeah, that's puts a fear in a ten year old, twelve year old kid. Twelve, so that's twelve started when you were twelve. Well, twelve to to nineteen, oh, so man. that was kind of a control issue over me, and he really attacked me and my sexual identity because he was grooming me to be same sex attracted because obviously, obviously he was, and you know how many young men he did that to. He eventually committed suicide. Uh, he was going to be getting reported. Then this would be in the eighties. And uh, that's what he eventually did. So I have, that's kind of my whole scenario growing up. And then my dad, uh, who my parents divorced when I was 11, I saw him twice a month. He lived in, he lived about 30, 40 minutes from us. He lived near Pasadena, uh, California. We were on the beach, if you know LA geography at all. And uh, my dad, you know, he wanted, well, I only got so much time to train you. So my relationship with my father was, you know, I got to make you into a man. It's kind of like the old Johnny Cash song, A Boy Named Sue. Okay, I'm not going to be around, so I'm going to name you Sue so you get tough. My dad just wanted me to, just do tough things just, just because, because of the timing. There wasn't a whole lot of just me and dad hanging out, having fun. It was like, well, I don't have you very long, so I'm going to yeah. grind you and ride you yeah, while yeah, I pull, do. Pull, pull, pull weeds all day, you know, and <laughs> okay. do this. Okay. <laughs> Make you a man by Make cleaning man. my yard. Went around the, around the block in his pickup truck with a with a clutch and said, okay, go up on the top of the mountain and go to the dump and take this stuff up there, you know, one, one lesson around the block. So that was my dad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll never forget a high school football game. My senior year, we're coming out of the locker room. And we're, we're behind like eight to six or something and I'm not playing real well. My dad breaks through the whole team and hits me. I'm like, will you hit somebody? <laughs> so, you know, that was that was just that. Yeah, you know, he kept scrapbooks on me and all sorts of stuff. He was really proud of my athletic achievement. And so I'll, I'll relate to that in a second. So I'm a real loser in the sense of academically, health-wise, athleticism, um, I am 12, I'm 13 years old now. I'm a freshman in high school. I was a young freshman. I was 13. I graduated at 17. And I look at my, my school's a great school. It's been used in a lot of Hollywood movies. If people saw it, I recognize that campus. It was an old, like, 1920s Gothic style. And it looks a lot like UCLA's campus. And mm-hmm. I, there was a the statement over the threshold of the door that said this, enter to learn and go forth to serve. And uh, I have a picture of that in my old office and uh, that my daughter had taken for me. But 
I stood there at 13. Really weird. I'm not a believer in Jesus. I'm not a... No church or no, faith growing Yeah, up. yeah, I'm Catholic. Okay, oh, okay. I, I was baptized at nine as a Catholic, and I have a, a faith in God. But I'm looking at that. I know this. I'm well aware. I'm a quitter. I'm a weak. I'm, I quit everything I ever tried. I, I'm a horrible student, and uh, I'm in trouble. I looked at that sign, and I said, you know, this is exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into this building. I'm going to make something about my life. So in all the pain, because I always the, the thing where I was deeply affected at a young age is that I'm behind everybody else. I'm behind Craig. Craig's way miles ahead of me. Is that just like your inner thought process right. the whole time is I'm right. always behind? You've heard me teach on this stuff, but cognitive distortions lie to you about reality. So you're a loser, you're inferior, uh -huh. you're no good at this. I mean, you've got these voices in your head all the time. You're believing, you have a belief system that's not necessarily true. Mine was, if I'm so far behind, let's just use as an example, whatever Craig does, I got to do twice. So if Craig does 50 push-ups, I do 100. You run a mile, I run two. You study for an hour, I'll study two. Hmm. And so people would look at me and they would go, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. They see this kind of a Rudy, kind of an overcomer mm. type thing. It would make a great movie. But what was driving that was not healthy. I okay, see. What was driving that, I'm doing this because they're such winners and I'm such a loser. Wow. And this is why I got to do that. I got to make up for what I don't have. So if you told me, like some people have told me that, you know, I come across kind of intelligent. I, don't, I would not see myself, even today, as someone who's intelligent. And uh, wow. I, I don't beat myself up. I just study more. <laughs> I'll study more. I got to prepare more. So it, it made an overachieving achiever in me, huh. which, and then, then I said, I want to I wanna get out of here. And to get out of here, I'm going to play football and I'm going to get a scholarship. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm five foot seven <laughs> at the point. I'm 121 pounds. Oh, and I'm slower molasses, okay? And I'm a basically, on a good day, a C-minus student, GPA. There's no way I'm going to get into college. no way I'm going to play college football. So I start really digging in. And then I studied, and I worked out, and studied, and worked out. I grew an inch. I got to 5'8", maybe 5'8 and a half. My senior year was 190 pounds. I was the strongest kid in the school, okay? <laughs> so so how that all happened, and I, and I went from a C-minus to I was on Honor Society. I graduated with an honor cord and with a GPA. I don't, okay, but I feel like we're missing some things in here. How, other than just I am deciding I need to be better than everybody and work harder, the your dad situation, your mom situation, the health stuff, the hoarding, the schizophrenic, the sort of, if I understand it correctly, one of the kind of laughing stock families of the town, and then the abuse with this guy. Yeah. Like, what's going on on the inside of 16-year-old Bob? Like, what are you emotionally feeling? Are you are you numbing it all? Are you masking it with the athletics? Were you were you in daily turmoil, or were you just like kind of above that? Like first, I started. I fell in love with school. School was my escape from all of that. Okay, the, where I saw a haven was going to school, and I think that's why I became a public school teacher. You know, out of college, because it had such a redemptive um, role in my life. Okay. Just so I, it was truly healthy. The academics yeah. was like, I'm learning. That's a good thing. And yeah. and you were drawn to it and and, and it was heal, healing. There was a coach named Zeke Zimmerman. And he, he said to me, he was only around my freshman year, but before he left, he said to me, he called me Mac. 
you know, at this time I'm a strapping 132 pounds. And, uh, you know, and uh, he said, Mac, you're what us coaches call one out of a thousand. And if you keep lifting weights, getting good grades, I'll get you a full ride. He was a Mormon. I'll get you a full ride at BYU. Well, I didn't care where I was going to go, but he made me believe. I never saw him again. But that type of affirmation just did something in me. I got mm. home, I threw my sister on my back, started running up the hills and doing hill running and put wow. on my back, I was doing push-ups. I mean, I'm going to make this happen. And, you know, the issue is I got on a roll. I, I issue is I was a part of a local area, South Bay, L.A., all-star football team. I played junior college football, then went to Central, played football for them. I was captain two times in my college football career and player of the week and I did all those things, then I graduated as a dean's assistant from Central. So, you know, I achieved all those things. But what was it, that was me just drive, 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 drive. And so that was the medication. My wife ran into one of my um, old friends from high school at a at a funeral she went to for her uncle, and so this guy talks to us. Well, you married Bob McGregor? She goes, Yeah. And, and he goes, Man, he used to hang around with us in junior high, and then one day he went into the weight room and he never came out. I think that's really descriptive of the unhealthy part of where mm -hmm. I was at. I, I was antisocial. I mean, I was a machine. I mean, I was an intense machine. I wasn't healthy. Mm -hmm. And I was numbing that. The other thing is I lived in absolute paranoia. I do not want you to find out about my secret life. Wow. I don't want you to know that I've been molested. I don't want you to know that I'm kind of feeling under control of somebody who's grooming me. I didn't want you to know my mom yells at voices and we live in garbage and I'm filthy and I can't shower. And um, I don't want you to know about all those things. And then I had a lack, just a lot of lack of, of skills, just normal things. A kid would grow up in a good home, habits of making the bed and this and that. And we'd wash our sheets once a year. So I recognized it was kind of filthy, kind of smelly. So it was really issue, lots of zits and everything else. It worked to my favor growing up, you know. I mean, in my older age, I have oily skin and I haven't wrinkled a whole lot. You know, so thank God for those zits. But, but so that was all that. Then I, you know, and I didn't do well with girls, with girlfriends and stuff. I just, that was awkward. Usually the second date ended the relationship. <laughs> and, uh, and one girl broke up with me with her friend there. She had to have her friend there breaking up with mm -hmm. me. So I really had some issues. And then I went to a local junior college, El Camino Junior College. It's in Redondo Beach, Torrance, California area. And I ran into a girl that was two years behind me where I worked at a hospital. I was a bouncer in an emergency room at Daniel Freeman, right where uh, SoFi Stadium is. Okay, today, that's where it was. And so she was candy striping, and, and I was the bouncer in the emergency room at the age of 19 <laughs> and we dated and that's my wife sue and uh, just oh. went head over heels over her it's the greatest thing since cracked ice and uh <laughs> and but i kept my life secret from her i mean she for how long oh well, this went for like uh, five six months and then one summer night outside uh -huh. of a of a kind of a convenience store she goes we're going to talk she goes you just come to my house every day i don't know where you live and I don't know your phone number. I have no way to make contact with you. You're like this mystery person that just arrives. Wow. So I've been called out. I thought it was working because I didn't want her to see my house. Had you ever brought any either females or like regular friends into your world and into your home? When I was a kid, 
I remember the last time I had a person in my home, and that may be just one of four or five one time. I mean, that's the That's it. Your whole my whole childhood. Kid through teenage. Exactly. People weren't wow. Yeah. So this kid's here. My dad just got divorce papers surfed him and he comes into the house and he starts screaming at my mom. He kicks three doors in and he leaves slamming the door. That was my last experience at the age of eleven. Someone being in my house. You're like, I'm never inviting anybody <laughs> over ever again. You know, welcome to my family. No, so never. So, you know, there's a lot of loneliness in me, uh, huge, because I just have no one to comfort me, process with. And I'm I'm creating a weird envi- uh, belief system about myself and about life. And, um, you know, I was, my issue was hard-nosed. I mean, you just got to be vicious and tough and aggressive. The only way you're getting out of here is scrapping. And, um, you know, so lack some compassion in one end, the other end, I'm just brokenhearted. So, mm-hmm. you know, Sue is such an incredible person, such values, even today. It's what made her such a great pastor's wife is she just sees value in everybody. And uh, she saw value in me. It was the first time somebody as a peer valued me, in my opinion. And I just, it was something else. But what happened yeah, is well, she that, pulls you up and she says, okay, this isn't working anymore. Yeah, like, I, who just tell, are you? I, t- I tell her the whole story. Oh, you tell, you and, just tell and, her and, and she, I don't tell her about the abuse. She doesn't find out about the sexual abuse till way later. Okay. And, uh, but I, everything else. And she didn't believe me. She thought I was kind of fabricating the story and. And uh, no, 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 this is. Oh, truthful. yeah, everybody's family's bad. You're yeah, making yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I'm sure your mom's really nicely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I could go on and on. I could talk hours about the thing. But, you know, because she's dealt with my mom, and my mom's lived with us on, as, as a married couple, and we had to be primary caretakers of her. She, uh, you know, she's full on educated on what I went through. She knows it full well. Yeah. So, what happened on that? So, I'm trying now, I am really kind of a codependent person. Mm. I want to, I want Sue to meet all my needs. And I have a view, vision of a white house, white picket fence, fun family, kids, a whole, a wholesome life. Cause I really had no experience. Sue wanted to get, be a biology major, get on Calypso ship with Jacques Cousteau and see the world. And, and that's her whole view. And I want, let's all settle down and let's do life together. Mm. So there's a lot of tension in that turned into two or three breakups and, and it was through that I, I, I left early the summer of my senior year to go back up to Washington. I gave her her freedom, and I, I started my journey trying to find God. And uh, through my, my junior well, how year— How old were you then? I was 20. So my junior year, uh, everybody that knew Jesus was witnessing to me like crazy, and I was okay. resisting that because I had become kind of a naturalist at that point. And dealing with my sexual identity, I became promiscuous— to prove that I wasn't same-sex attracted. Mm. So I was dealing with Catholic guilt over that. I, 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 every night I went to sleep, I said a prayer that you say in confession called the act of contrition. You know, Oh, my God, I'm hardly sorry for having offended thee. Detest all my sins for thy just punishments. Most of all, I've offended you who are all good and deserving all my love. And so you ask God to give you grace to... To, to continue on. All, all I was going to do is sin the next day. But just in case I died during the night, I wanted to keep it clean. You know, so I'm just not doing well at all. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, And I'm lonely up in Central. Susan at UC Irvine in California. It's not going well. And uh, I'm, I'm starting to now reap all the uh, acute, traumatic, ex- toxic, traumatic experiences of my youth. I start hearing voices. I start sleepwalking. 
I'm, I'm, I'm in my head. I think I'm responsible for an abortion. Uh, you know, I have no proof, but I've started creating this fantasy that I did. I can't sleep at night. I can't eat. My senior year, as a lineman in a small college, I played at 186 pounds because I lost so much weight. Just from stress and all these Stress, things. depression, anxiety. Did you think at any point, I'm just like my mom? Yes. I thought I was going to lose my mind. I was contemplating suicide. So um, wow. not talking, just thinking. I, I don't know if I can continue on with this torment in my head. Mm. And, I was in a, and, and I was resisting the gospel, and Jesus was after me. But what was interesting to bring me to conversion, there was a few things that happened. One, I met a, a little dance bar that we have in at Ellensburg called Goofy's back in the day, and I'm in a dancing with this girl that's a pickup scene. And I asked her, uh, you know, what'd you do today? And she thought, well, my father, I was with my dad here in Yakima, and we did, and she said 18, and you used a medical term I didn't understand. I said, hey, what are those? She said, we, we did 18 abortions. And so what I feared was potentially presented to me. And I felt that it was the Lord that that He hit me on that dance floor, like what you feared is going to happen to you. Wow. The second thing that took place is that I was doing a intense student teaching thing at Rainier State School with mentally challenged uh, adults and teenagers, and my master teacher lost his mind. He flipped out. And they had to haul him out of the classroom. He had a psychotic breakdown. Whoa. And I felt the Lord and my roommate at that time, a guy that was working with me in the student program, he was sleeping like 18 hours a day. He was depressed. And the Lord said, okay, this is what you're going to do. What you fear is going to happen to you. You're going to see, you're going to be responsible for an abortion and you're going to. You feel lose like this my, is the Lord saying this? Yeah. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to lose. So a divine you're, you're gonna, warning, not, you know, not a, the voice of the devil saying, this is going to happen no, to you. No, no, I felt the Lord I was, saying, I, I was aware. You're I'm at being, the tipping I, I'm point. Being, I'm being warned. Wow. That this could be your future. You continue on. Wow. And you didn't like, per se, really know, the, I mean. No, the, I had been reading the New Testament. Oh, you had started. Yeah, I had been reading the New Testament. And what's provoked that? All your friends talking well, to you? Well, no, no, it was witnessing to, and Sue and I broke up, and of course my life oh. ain't going to be, she's she's not going to be the romantic idol that's going to fill my broken soul. Right. And uh, it's unfair of her. I asked a lot of unfair things of, of her. I see. And so I need to start over. I started by hiking up in the mountains and sitting there saying, this is the cosmological argument for the existence of God. And I said, this can't be an accident. I did that from just hiking. So I went up early. It's like two months before football started. I just kind of hung around in the mountains of the town, did picked up odd jobs, and I was kind of on a journey. Okay. I returned to the Catholic Church. Um, I did a handicap camp, and they asked me then, since you're Catholic, would you lead our Catholic uh, like CCD program in the evening? You know, because you're a local football guy, could you do that? And I said, Well, you don't know the guy you're talking to. If you knew, you wouldn't be asking me to do this. But I did. And, and in that, uh, there was a young, another college student, I forget the girl's name, uh, who had been involved in the Catholic charismatic movement. She started talking about these prayer meetings and what they were doing. And it, it attracted me because, like, God's alive on planet Earth. And it was through that that uh, I got introduced to an Episcopalian priest named Dennis Bennett. I gave my life to Jesus and uh, got baptized in the Holy Spirit and eventually got water baptized and I just devoured the Bible. You got baptized in the Holy Spirit through an Episcopalian? Yeah. 
and slash started through a, a Catholic charismatic movement. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, ended, and I ended up in an Assembly of God church. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Where you needed I, to land. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm landing guess. all over. I'm landing all over the place. And this is 22. Yeah. I'm around. Tw- I'm, tw- I'm 21 years old when this is all happening. 21 when this is 20 happening. and 21 years old. And you're like in, br- in a breakup season. One of Yeah. Sue and I are soon. reuniting whether we want to make this go or not. So okay. she came up to see me play football. And uh, then we had to have a kind of a come to grips, like, are we going to make this relationship work? And we had a long talk. It was a pivotal moment in our relationship. And that was good. But then about three months later, I give my life to Christ. Now we have a Jesus guy, and Sue's kind of messing around with pluralism as a Catholic. She wasn't wasn't a Christian yet. And so I have to challenge her, you know, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and what are you going to do with that? So I asked her, do you believe in Jesus? She goes, well, I do. Do you believe he's the way to salvation? She goes, I do. And so do you believe Muslims you know, have a way to salvation? Yes. How about Buddhists? Yes. How about Krishnas? Yeah. I so see. I say, well, then you really don't believe Jesus is the, the way. And so I challenged her thinking on that. She ended up going back to school at UC Irvine and just happened, because she's nice to everybody, her old roommate has a, a new roommate, and that girl happens to be a messianic jew and she was unpacking her boxes in this apartment that sue was visiting and had all these bibles and so sue said oh i see you have bibles there she goes yeah she goes i've always wanted to read it and what she didn't say i always i want to read that and i want to read the ruby out of omar Khayyam. i wanted to read the book of mormon i want to just kind of do explore all these ideas girl said would you have a bible study with me sue goes well yeah yeah i guess i'm stuck now i will and so she sits down with this girl and before they start the bible study the girl says well can i pray now, remember, this is right where the Jesus Revolution is taking place. I mean, Sue was right in the area where well, that was taking place. In the years, too? Yeah, the, yeah. She was, this is 1970, 70? early 76. Wow. This is 76. So this wow. is right at the tail end of that whole revival. Yeah. And uh, Sue goes, well, let's pray. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we read this. And this girl starts praying. Well, Sue's never seen anybody pray like this. And she was awestruck of the intimacy that mm. this girl, this mm. Messianic Jew had with Jesus. And it, she started getting a Navigator's Bible study, and then she came up and worked for me. I, I After college, I ran a group home for three months. And mm. uh, she came up to work for me, and she went up hiking in the mountains, and she read the book of Revelation, <laughs> and uh, up, up, way up in a mountain lake, yeah. in Mount Index, and north, and up, up, up uh, North Cascades Highway. And she got lost. And so she said she didn't know where she was up in the mountains. In the mountains. Mountains. It got dark. She, was reading. she said, well, if you're the God of this book, get me out of here. And she just looked up, and there was a path. She took it straight to her car. And it was from that moment, man, she just gave her life to Christ, and God did wonderful things in history. And we've been with each other, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, and married 49 years. So it's been a wonderful, wonderful journey. But so she's had to live with that. So bam. So what now in ministry, I'm, I'm now a teacher going into youth pastoring. What I'm dealing with as a Christian, I'm dealing with all sorts of voices. There's voices in my head. You're a loser. You're inferior. When a child's sexually abused, they feel there's a defilement in me that's not in somebody else. Hmm. When you live in garbage, I am, I'm a garbage rat. Okay, everyone else is normal human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now all these voices now transition into my Christian experience. So this is why I do my seminar, because I'm devouring the Bible. I'm leading people to Jesus. 
I'm being used by God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that God just gives us by his grace are operating through me. But I I don't think right at all. Two plus two equals seven. I mean, I am not well. And this is I'm, a huge piece. Just real quick pause. Yeah, yeah. Somebody can be used by God in powerful ways and yet still dealing with significant issues. Yes. You <laughs> They're know, not mutually exclusive. We, we, so you know, we God begins to use you, right. but you're... And you were really saved, but there's still this long process that needs to take place. Right. Uh, That's why I'm such a grace man, okay, because it, we are saved by grace. We're not saved because we're in perfect alignment and we're beautifully put together. We're broken and rebellious and selfish and everything else. You know this, and, you know, we're depraved. And, we, and, we, and there's things that reveal the nature of God in our life, but we're marred. And uh, when you get saved, it's just like all the things those will vanish. Right. Okay, they're there. And then when God gives us abilities by his spirit, you know, the word charis is the word for grace. Charismatic comes from right. charis. These are grace gifts. Right. They're not gifts that you earn. Right. You know, look at Samson. He, he wasn't too worthy. David, you know, he had his issues. <laughs> right. Peter, he yeah. had his issues. Even the book of Galatians, Peter's still dealing with wishy-washiness, okay? Yeah. And yet he's, you know, the first pope. I, I say that jokingly. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, but he is he is a major pillar in the early church. Right. The cor- one of the cornerstones of Christianity, and yet he was wrestling with these things. So, yeah. So you're being used by God. You really have been touched by God. Life has genuinely changed. You're on, on the track. Yeah. But you're dealing with, you're a loser. You're garbage. Huge. You're never... Huge. Did, did the whole, like, I need to work two times harder come into your theology yeah, and absolutely. Your, your ministry? Yeah, my wife, if she could testify, she would tell you, you know, like, we're going to go to church. There's a nice storm outside. We're going to get to church because we got to get to church. So I really uh, responded even, like, church standards with a horrible, like, reaction, intense response. Like, yes, sir, we were going to do it to the T. So there was just unhealthy things huh. in my grid of Christianity. So for the first 10 years of, of my Christian experience, I've become a youth pastor. I'm a, I'm a public school teacher. I'm working with people. And then I go to Bible college at Portland Bible College at the age of 27. I'm dealing with all these voices. It's pretty, pretty tough. And... Um, and I asked Dick Iverson years later, I said, you know, you were pretty hard on this leader and this leader and this leader and this leader mm. who are great guys who have shook the kingdom of God. Dick I, I, would be one of the the lead pastor at the right. time of a, a, a massive church. And the founder of MFI. Founder of, yeah, this international church. So this is a man of stature. Right. He looks at you yeah, and says. Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. So, uh, so I asked him, how come you were so easy on me? But hard on other people. And I asked him that. Yeah. He said, well, that was easy. You were too beat up. Hmm. And that wasn't just from that, but my first six years as a Christian, I had a really weird pastor who tried to tell me over and over and over again, like a broken record, I wasn't called. So I was working I was working against that. So I went from the boiling pot into the frying pan or the frying pan, the boiling pot, however you want to say it. So let me ask a clarifying question. The, this whole podcast is through the lens of, oh, look at how successful you are now and you have been. What's some of the pain you've been through? Can I ask this? At that time, if one of your peers would have looked at you at that time, because you were so hardworking, would they? Mo- would most people have thought at that time, oh, wow, he's so strong, You know, he's doing all this. Did other people think you were beat up or was that an insight like, did, was it obvious that you were beat up, or was it like, no, I'm Bob and I'm strong, but it was an insight from a spiritual father that knew? No, I think the people who knew me well 
would have especially known. I'm going to call my big brothers in the faith. Would you know Frank one time Frank Damazu, who now is the chairman of MFI and former pastor of City Bible, one time he said, "And don't be weird." Okay. <laughs> in other words, he he dealt with my my moods. Okay. Um, I Wendell Smith, who's now with Jesus, one time he goes, "Let me ask you a question: Are, are you afraid to be great?" Because I had such you know negative put down and that mm-hmm. type of a thing. So, what happens when you're going through a bunch of stuff is that you think you're hiding it from people. Mm-hmm. So I can say, well, they I covered it up, mm-hmm. but they are more aware many times than you think they're aware of what's going on in you. You're you're re, you're spilling more out than mm-hmm. you you really realize, mm-hmm. and I'm sure that was the case. But what snapped me out of it was a number of things. One, Dick Iverson was a very loving father to me. And I he remember, says, you're beat up. I'm treating you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is after the fact. Okay. I went. I came to Bible Temple. I was 27. I made an appointment with him, and he saw me. And uh, I kind of shared my journey. My former pastor, you know, six years of kind of spiritual abuse, really. So I went from. So that's before Bible Temple. Yeah, you know, this is right before Bible Temple. Yeah. Six years, this guy's like, you're not called. No, not called. Yeah, all the time. I was, you're full of pride. You're full of the flesh. And uh, we're a little farming community up called Elma up in Washington. And. Mm. Um, that's why I left. Sue stopped reading the Bible for a year. We weren't doing really well spiritually in there. And I went to Bible college because I felt, I am called. I'm going to do this. And, you know, Brother Dick was very, we called him Brother Dick. He was he was really uh, kind to me, very affirming. And uh, about three months into the church, my former church, I, I was getting communications like I ran away from the will of God. And so being hypersensitive with a prohibitive conscience, I'm thinking I sinned, I, I I ran away from, I ran away from Nineveh, mm. and I went to Tarshish. But uh, I, uh, you, you, the story of Jonah. But yeah. I went to Dick Iverson after a church service, and can I talk to you a few minutes? Sue's with me. I have Julia, my oldest daughter, in a little bassinet, and uh, he says, "Well, sit down." And I share. I'm hearing voices of the former church, and you know, maybe I'm out of the will of God being here. I, I left prematurely, mm. <laughs> and he said, "This, I've been watching you." He says, "You're a gift to the church." You're not ready to do anything yet, <laughs> but but you're a gift to the church, and we're and I I called your former pastor, you did, yeah I made him admit you're called, and I said release Bob and Sue to us, we'll train them better than you can, and he did, wow, and what how that impacted me, it was the fr- first time in my life that someone did something for me, and uh, was I, I fell in love with them just because you know, this guy went to bat for me. I was going to say, was it the fact that he believed in you or was it the fact that he took action and defended you? Both. Wow. Both. It meant a lot that he affirmed me. Yeah. Okay, it settled some voices in my head. So but, this presence but to in go your to, life but to was... Go, but go to bat for me. Yeah. Remember, I was abused. Right. My dad was an alcoholic. You know, I remember... I like to tell another story, but we got too many stories here. But my dad was an alcoholic, so you know it wasn't like I got a lot of like uh, attaboys. This is yeah. what we believe in you. Yeah, and um, you know, man, that did something to so me. So that's the beginning. That of was the beginning, like significant healing. Yeah, the other was well, really a theological uh, um, road I was on, and that is I did a lot of street evangelism. I did Francis Amfuso's what he called the two question test. Are you going to heaven? And you believe in heaven? Are you going there when you died? And then you kind of convince them all these things won't save you. Like 
doing the best you can, being sincere, mm-hmm. uh, keeping the Ten Commandments. And here's the issue. You say they won't get you to heaven. So I was street preaching to two kids from Madison High School that's on 82nd Avenue near Rocky Butte in Portland, Oregon. And I'm going through the whole list with them. And I did this on break times as a youth pastor. I'd go down and preach to kids. And uh, I'm driving back up to Rocky Butte, and I, it appears to me, and I feel like I had an epiphany from the Lord, that this is how you're trying to save yourself. Hmm. You're doing the same thing as a follower. You're trying to save yourself, sanctify yourself, do everything on your, your efforts. And I, and I realized that. So I started through the book of Romans, studying like the life of Martin Luther and what mm-hmm. the torment he went through. Mm-hmm. So a lot mm-hmm. of identity with that. Mm-hmm. I came to a real understanding of grace. Now the problem with pastoring at Bible Temple in those days, great church, is that it had real high standards. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and so the parents could be a little bit critical of the youth pastor. <laughs> and so I learned to receive criticism because if someone said to me like, you know, I don't know why they hired you, I just agreed with my adversary quickly. I just said, well, it's two of us we're, we're in the same boat here. And I learned that that I was called by God's choosing, not by he just saw just a wonderful guy full of gifts and everything else mm. that was by a sheer mercy. And I, his power in my life was why I was going to become successful. It wasn't me. So I could kind of really dial down on Bob's part. Yes, I recognize that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but, man, I had that way over here. Right, right, right. I, I, I took God's responsibilities. Right. And I started resting in grace, started understanding mm-hmm. that, you know, my scars were my message. And uh, I thought my scars were my disqualification. Mm. My scars were my message. But it took me all the way up to right before I planted City Harvest Church in, in 1997. It, all the way up where I really started understanding what was going on in my brain. And that was I had a lot of ruminating thoughts like a fly in your head that wouldn't leave. And it would be like a broken cycle, go for weeks. And I couldn't shake it. I couldn't concentrate. I wouldn't be present. And I had to fight that all the time. Very tiring. Mm -hmm. And I had to understand what the brain patterns were and how to adjust those brain patterns. And so you take, and then, of course, since that, in the last 25, 27 years, have been wonderful years for me. Mm. But I had to go through a lot to learn. And, And in that learning, I've developed a quite an arsenal of counsel to the church on how to overcome emotional issues. Yeah. So, man, thank you for sharing all that. I don't think, and I have full transparency heard a lot of that, not all of it, but before. But most people, if they looked at you and didn't know any of it, they wouldn't actually guess that. It's an amazing thing what God's done in your life and who he's made you to be. And this is probably a big question, so I don't know if you can answer one or two things simply or at least start people on a path of a more robust answer. But if there was a piece of advice or two that you could give to people that are they're hearing this, they're like, that's that's me, that's where I'm at in regards to some of these issues, the thoughts, the inner voices. What, what are some things that people could grab onto practically that are just either tools they can do or at least a step down the road. All right. I think first is to have a a biblical worldview of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I would send you to Romans chapter one through seven, 
mm-hmm. or actually one through eight. Mm-hmm. So you just understand who you are in Christ and study the book of Galatians. That's where Paul's ticked off okay? right. <laughs> because they lost what they were in Christ because right. they chose to, a slave system. Right. Okay. So get, as, as Ern Baxter, a great teacher in the body of Christ, years ago said, I kind of talk like this. He goes, if you don't know Romans, if you don't know Galatians, you're a goner. Okay? <laughs> and you got to be established in the grace of God. Right. Be strong, Paul said to Timothy, in the grace of God, the, the favor and the force of God's work in your life. And uh, you, if you're not secure in that, it's identity stuff, you're, you're going to be, we got, we're spiritual beings, and you're going to be susceptible to accusation of the enemy and right. knock you off. What do you do when you fail or you can't do things right? Could God use you in your handicap? Well, yeah. Paul probably was the worst candidate for the Gentiles, and Peter was probably the worst candidate for the Jews. Right. But yet God crossed him, and there's the cross. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's what he does. So he chooses brokenness for his glory. And Paul's very clear on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 and to 31. So get that down. Right. The second thing, simple counsel, it is worth a lot of mileage. Find a safe person and uh, someone you could bounce off of and process your thinking and choose to take their thoughts about what you're thinking over your own judgment of your thoughts. Because mm-hmm. you have a false reality. Right. And it's actually your own pastor, Jonathan Owens, who really introduced me to the, 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 the term. I had already been practicing it with my wife. I had chosen at one point because I was so tired of being tired and being tormented. I'm feeling guilty. I said, if I'm questioning a gray area, something I, you know, I'm feeling guilty about, I'm going to take Sue's judgment over mine on this. And it just, it just helped me so much. So just do those two things mm. are important. But you really got to process. You got to bring your thoughts out. Yeah. And you got to really process them. All right. You got to be honest about what. And it's such a hard thing to say, okay, I 100% feel this on the inside. But because I trust you and you're more objective than I am in this moment, I'm choosing to believe that your insight is more accurate than my insight, from, even from the inside. Right. Huh. That's good. Is there any resources that people, um, is your, like your content, for example, the, the seminar you do, is any of that available? Well, or it, is that all just live stuff? Well, it, it has been live. It's going to continue to be live, but I'll eventually get it on hischurchministries.org where I have seminars and I'll, they can tap into the seminar. Hischurchministries.org. And, and that's where all of your, yeah. that, by the Bible teaching, the every chapter is eventually right. all going to be. Right. And I'll, I'll have, a, yeah. have a part that says seminars, kind of where I'm doing them, the type of seminars that I do. It's not just on mental health. You know, I got one on developing your prophetic gift. Mm. I got one on church planning. But I plan to have them online uh, so that people just download the book. Beautiful. Man, uh, I know that there's a lot more that could be said about all that. And um, But thank you for sharing some intimate details. Yeah. And so today, and we're, the, we serve Jesus. And uh, Sue and I have been married 45 years, four daughters, 13 grandchildren. And uh, and it hasn't been just that our life has just been a rose garden. You know there's been some tragedies hit my yeah. family. But but the the issue is he is faithful. Mm-hmm. And my, my testimony is that justice may be delayed, but justice comes. He mm-hmm. turns the tables. Well, that's beautiful. And that actually brings me uh, 
turns the corner really well for the second part, um, and this will be shorter, however long you want to talk about this, but conversations and contrast is about two primary questions. One, what is one of the hardest things you've been through in your life? And the second is, and I don't know if you knew that I did this or not, but the second is I'm trying to go behind people's back and get some goods on them. You know, the proverb says, let another man or another person speak your praises. So I did a little asking around and I said, hey, what's one of the best things about Pastor Bob? What do you, what do you love about him the most? And I'm specifically was looking for things that uh, maybe you wouldn't normally talk about from the pulpit or something like this because it would sound like bragging. Um, but one thing that has stood out and, uh, and I think that it's interesting in light of your story. And so don't be humble about any of this. Just tell us about it. You and your wife open your home to people so much and so, um, heartily. And, and this is, this is really crazy to me. I guess now I'm putting it together, realizing that you didn't let anybody into your home when you were a kid because of their circumstance. And then number two, just as a, as a, a pastor of a big church, and there's just sometimes boundaries that people put up a little distance, a little, you know, whatever the reason I need my alone time, or I just need my space, or I can't, I can't open up to quote unquote regular people. Cause I'm the leader, any number of reasons, which is, is fine. But you guys, your home is like a place that you have people and it's open and, and, and you, you host and you serve and you, you feed and all that. So how did that come about? Like where, where did that come from, especially in light of your story? Well, I think you nailed it at the beginning. You're, because of your past, you went, you went this way. You never had anybody at your house, and now you did. So at the beginning, yeah, for me to have somebody at my house was just the coolest thing in the world, to have mm. someone be able to have dinner with me. So you're like, my, my house is clean. My I, house is clean. I would want you here. Yeah, and I think that also I felt very, very unwanted. So there were, because of my mom, and maybe I was a kind of bratty kid in the neighborhood, you know, back in the 60s, every house had two to four kids. So you love all these houses and kids all played. There was one house across the street. Everyone could go into the house for Kool-Aid at summertime, but I wasn't allowed in the house. Are you an only child? No. No, I have a sister below me and a, and a, and a sister above me. And uh, I wasn't allowed into the, to the house. Everybody else come on in, but no, not you. No, yeah. And so I sat there. So feelings of rejection, mm-hmm. being unwanted. Um, that's why I've always felt like either I wouldn't call myself an expert on racism and all, but I would feel an identity with the pain of rejection that can take place with a lot of, uh, lot of, ag- of aggression against me in a lot of different subtle ways. And, um, and so just to have a have sensitivity this person i want them to feel welcomed in my home because they're important to me mm-hmm. is huge because the haunting voices of being unwanted are are there so that's one but the other thing also there was two other things that that was a big issue that was kind of in the beginning but my my daughter natalie on our on our transition service back in august here this last year she said something to our church this is a transit this yes. was after leading a church that they planted for 25 years, handing it over 
to a new lead pastor. That just happened this last week. Yes, it happened the last weekend of August. And it was our 25th anniversary, too. At that, she She, said, said, My kids are all on the platform and they were interviewing them. And she said, She says, The things that people need to know about my parents is that they're believers first. That's probably one of the greatest compliments Mm -hmm. I have ever received because Mm -hmm. that is my heart. So when I see a, a, a human being in need, it's not, I never go like, well, I'm a pastor, I'm above this. Mm-hmm. I feel like Jesus has thrown him in my path as a believer. And I, I have to respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, you know, so I, and the third thing was my kids have lived a great life. They had great, great, their grandparents were great. I, my dad actually became an incredible grandpa. Okay, that's the redemptive mm. of the story. Stop drinking. He was a great, he was really good to my kids. My in-laws were great, just super grandparents. They were just great. And, and we had great extended family experiences. We were blessed. We tried to have fun on vacations. They got to go to youth camps with me. You know, youth camp kids, they get, they get to go to the snack bar and, and just the sky's the limit. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, they're spoiled. And, and, but I wanted them to see not just that part of the kingdom, but I wanted them to see why we exist. So I'll purposefully, I had some pretty rascal people in my house. Now, people would say, you were stupid. You were jeopardizing your children. And, and probably, they're probably correct. I could have gone to an extreme. But I wanted them to see a street kid or a, a gang member or a kid out of JDH or a single mom with two kids and has no place to go. Right. So that they would know that we live in a... with moral responsibility to relate to humanity. Hmm. Now, my my job has stretched me so much over the years. And I have grandkids in my house that my kids may have different convictions with me. I have to, to honor right. that I, I don't do the bringing in my home anymore just because I, I'm nothing to these people because I'm so consumed with other stuff. But hospitality, um, having people in the house, having big parties and having everybody feel welcomed and you're part of the family, still a very much a part mm. of us. Ralph Neighbor, big guru of the self church movement said the gospel is not information to impart, but it's community to experience. Mm. And if the gospel is going to be experienced, it has to be experienced in community. Mm-hmm. Man, I love that. Especially in a culture that is more and more about the plat not it's actually not about but seemingly about the platforms the stages the services the events or in my case and others uh more and more online which is physically disconnected from people no matter how quote-unquote big you got whatever stage you're standing on to show your kids it's always been about humans that have needs sometimes to just have a meal or a cold cup cup of water or a place to live and you know the feeling of rejection and so to open your home that's beautiful well i know that i uh honestly could talk to you about (laughs) so many things we could go for a couple hours you got a lot of people to interview uh yeah we do we're leaving tonight and heading down south but uh I really appreciate you sharing your story. Well, and, Craig, and thank you so much for having me. I mean, I just feel honored that you would think that I was 
here, here's the here's the little guy coming out. You know, that, that was worthy of your interview. You're, you're interviewing some big guys, some big names. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so just to be a part of the cast. Okay? <laughs> it's like one of those movies where they have actors and sporting actors and stuff, and you get this little guy's thing. He had one line in the scene of the movie. Yeah. That's how I feel. But anyway. Well, your name is at the top, buddy. <laughs> Can we just close this way? I wonder if you could say a prayer, and specifically for... Whatever direction you feel led, but man, there's a lot from your past that I think that you could offer a, a real genuine prayer of faith about um, trauma of childhood, mm-hmm. abuse, mm-hmm. Um, some of those you right. know, schizo- schizophrenia, the the recurring thoughts Re- in the yeah, mind, resonating I mean, thoughts. All of that is is ramp. A lot of that people are dealing with. So could, yeah, they are. Would you mind time. just praying into that for sure. anybody that's resonating Amen. with those things? Let's pray, Father. We thank you so much that. You sent your son not just to die for our sins, but even the effects of our sin and the sins of others mm-hmm. against us, Lord. And Lord, we are we are a broken human race. We're broken people. We're people being sanctified. We're being matured. We're being healed. And Lord, there's probably those out there that are listening to this podcast, listening to um, mm-hmm. Craig interview people and interviewing me today and the great story of my journey with you and, and the wonderful things that you've done. Lord, I, I thank you that you've been faithful. And my prayer to me, and I, you've been, you're faithful to them, my prayer for them is first that they would know, Lord, that you are near them. They, they, you have full knowledge. And why don't you just quickly deliver? But in your wisdom, Lord, you, you know what we need to do to go through what we need to go through. And uh, in your wisdom, you know why you're doing it. But let them know that you have not mm-hmm. left them. You will never leave or forsake them and land them in a place of health, productivity, and destiny and purpose. Let them have faith that you have a future for them. And it's full of expectation. It's full of hope. But, Lord, I pray for the healing of their mind. I pray mm-hmm. that you will lead them to the resources, the people, the books, Lord, more importantly, your scriptures that are given to us to give us hope for eternal life and life in this life. And thank you, Lord, that you came to bring life abundantly, mm-hmm. abundantly, not just life, but abundant life. I pray that they would have faith that their cups would be filled, that they're going to have a good family life, that what took place in the past is not going to be a reflection of where their future's at. And this sounds so trite, but Lord, that their pain will one day become their platform. Mm -hmm. Their mess will become their message. And Lord, I know that's said so many times, but it's so true that there are lessons for them to learn to become the people you've called them to be. May those who have been abandoned be adopters. Those that have been broken, let them become healers. Lord, those who are forsaken, Lord God, let them be faithful to others in covenant commitment. And I just mm-hmm. thank you for the outcome of this and thank you for what you've done in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Well, thank you, Pastor Rob. One more time, the website? is hischurchministries.org. Hischurchministries.org. And it's up now. It's up now. It's up now. And there's going to be more and more uh, content that he's adding to that. So thanks for joining us today, everybody. God bless you. Amen. <laughs>